Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from I Could Never Believe in a God Who, our series in which we examine and respond to serious objections to Christianity. Here is Pastor Nick. We also know that all four Gospels tell us that the women were the first to come to the tomb on Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave. They were the key eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now that's important because in that culture, women were not allowed to testify in court or their testimony wasn't taken seriously in court. It was considered untrustworthy. And so in other words, let's, let's think about this. If you made up a story, a totally fake story that you want, to, you want people to believe, you want to pass this story off on people, you would not make women the key witnesses in the story. Why? Because it would be counterproductive. Because nobody would believe a story like that, so why would you tell it? If you were going to make up a story, you would always choose to have somebody, you know, reliable, somebody uh, who seemed legit be your eyewitness. And yet, pushing against tradition and culture in all four Gospels, the testimony is given by women. There would have been pressure to eliminate these women from the story and replace them with men who would seem more, uh, let's say, valid or believable to people in that society. And yet, the early Christians refused to do that. Why? Well, first of all, because this is what actually happened and they weren't willing to change the facts. And secondly, because they didn't believe that women were less than men. They were following Jesus in this way. Here's what you need to know about that. When Jesus treated minorities and women as equals, this wasn't something that he came up with. This wasn't something that was new to him. It wasn't like Jesus made this up. It didn't exist before and Jesus came and totally changed it all. No, see, Jesus was actually being consistent with one of the core teachings of the Bible, which is found in the very most ancient biblical texts. And that is this, that every human being, no matter what their gender, no matter what their race, no matter what their physical level of ability, they are of equal value by nature of the fact that they are created by God and created in the image of God. In the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, we read how God created the world. And it says that after he had created everything else, at the very pinnacle of his creative work, he created human beings. And it says that he created them in his own image. And it says male and female, he created them. Everything that God created, as you go through a story, you know, he creates this and he creates that. And he looks at it and everything he creates, he looks at it and says, it is good. But after he creates human beings, he says something different. He looks at them and what does he say? He says, it is very good. See, out of all of creation, this is what sets human beings apart. That we are created in the image of God. Your cat is nice, but it's not created in the image of God. Your dog, I'm sure, is very smart, but he's not created in the image of God. But you are. That's what sets us apart. And what does that mean, by the way, that we're created in the image of God? Well, it means a lot of things. Let's just give you a couple. One of them, it means that we are created with certain capacities which other creatures don't have. So, for example, we are creative beings. We are rational beings. 
More importantly, we are spiritual beings. God created us. God, as an eternal spirit, created us in his image and gave us an eternal soul, which will live forever, which means this, that when your body dies, that's not the end of you. You will go on existing. Your soul will exist for all eternity. The question is where? Will your soul spend eternity with God or will you spend eternity separated from God? And if God is the source of light and beauty and all that is good, well then to be separated from that for eternity would be death and darkness. It would be, well, hell. There's another aspect to what it means that we're created in the image of God. One author describes it this way. It's a female author. She said, it wasn't that God noticed fatherly love and then decided to call himself a father. It wasn't, so I'll say it again, it wasn't that God noticed fatherly love and then decided to call himself a father. Rather, God created fatherhood to serve as an image of who he is in his paternal love and care. Another example, she says, it wasn't that God noticed the intimacy of marriage and then decided to call himself a husband and a bridegroom. Rather, God created marriage to be an image of the faithful, passionate, sacrificial love that he has. See, the point is this. One of the ways that we reflect the image of God that we bear is when we live out the attributes of God. So when we are truthful, when we love, when we forgive, when we are faithful, when we are loyal, when we are good, he created us in his image. Male and female, he created us. First of all, that tells us that all humans have equal value innately because of how they are created. And that's really important. That makes a really big practical difference in how you view people and even how you act. For example, the Nazi regime in Germany, you know, they, they exterminated people based on this ideology that some people are worth more than other people. And this is the interesting thing. You know, they didn't start out killing Jews, the Nazis. You know how they started out? They started out exterminating those who had mental and cognitive disabilities. So if you had a mental disability, they started killing these people and exterminating them. Why? Because they said these people are a drain on our society. They drain on finances, drain on resources, and therefore they're not contributing. They're not able to contribute, so therefore we'd be better off as a society without them. So they started killing people who had mental uh, and cognitive disabilities. Then they moved on beyond that and they started exterminating people who were handicapped in other ways. People who were terminally ill. They just started uh, letting them die or even killing them, euthanizing them. And then they went beyond that and they started euthanizing the elderly. Now, why would they do that? Because in their view, a, a person's worth was based, their value as a human was based on their ability, what they could do or what they couldn't do. But here's what the Bible says. It teaches that all people, including the handicapped, including the mentally disabled, including the elderly, including the terminally ill, they have value, intrinsic, inherent value that cannot be taken away from them and that cannot change. Their value is based not on their ability. It's based on the fact that they've been created by God in his image. Now, in the ancient world, women were not considered to have as much value as men. In the eyes of the law, uh, a woman had the same status as a child. In other words, she belonged 
to someone else, always a man, uh, whether it's her father or her husband. Uh, in other words, a woman was not an autonomous person who had their own rights as, as an autonomous person. And because of that, historians tell us something interesting about the Greco-Roman world. And that is this, that the Greco-Roman world was disproportionately male. There were a lot more men than there were women. You say, well, how does that happen? I mean, isn't it kind of, you know, it's kind of always equal. There's 50-50. Well, no. Uh, here's why. It was disproportionately male. Because of a practice called selective infanticide. Selective infanticide, which means exactly what you think it means. It means that when a child was born, if that child was unwanted or sick or let's say deformed or, God forbid, if they were a girl, well then that, that family would often abandon that child. And the way they would abandon them is they'd take them out of the city into the forest where the trash was thrown. And so they put them on the trash heap to, to be left there to die. Sometimes they would die by natural causes. Often they would be attacked by wild animals. And in maybe the worst case scenario, they would be picked up by people who had bad intentions. Pimps, slave sellers, right? Who would, who would take these children and then sell them into a lifetime of slavery and prostitution. It was an awful, awful thing. But what it led to was a disproportionate number of men and men in the society versus women. And of course, we look at that and we say that is shocking, that's appalling. But guys, in 1979, China introduced a one-child policy. And do you know what happened? The exact same thing. If the ultrasound came back that the child was a female and they could only have one kid, well, they want to have a boy. And they aborted so many baby girls who never saw life. And so, or never saw uh, light, right? They, in other words, and it led to what? A disproportionate number of men than women. See, for Christians, though, we have a completely different ethic. For us, every child is a wanted child. Every child is a wanted child. Why? Because the Bible teaches that every human being is made in the image of God and has equal and intrinsic value. Back in the Roman Empire, it was Christians who would start coming around. They became famous for this and people mocked them for it. They didn't understand it. They would come around and they would roam these trash heaps and they would collect these abandoned children. Did you know that Christians invented the orphanage? But they also invented things like foster care, Right? And so what they would do is they would go around and they would collect these abandoned children and they would adopt them, right? And they would raise them as their own. Why? Because the Bible tells us that that's what God has done for us. Hasn't he? He values us. He rescues us from the trash heap and he saves us and he makes us his children. But see, the Bible doesn't only teach that women and minorities are equal. It also teaches us that they are something else, that they are unique. In Acts chapter 17, we're told this. It says this, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. What does that mean? Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities? Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? 
I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics. And it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. And to celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as a gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. Here's what it means. It means that God created nations. It means that God created nations. The fact that we have many nations in the world isn't an accident. It wasn't a oops, right? It was something that God intended and designed. And yet the thrust of the whole Bible is that God loves all the people of the world. The mission that Jesus gave his disciples is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and make disciples of all nations. And the picture we get in heaven at the end of the Bible is what? It's a picture of a great multitude made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, as people created in the image of God, there are ways in which even different cultures reflect God's image in different ways. And that variety, that uniqueness is good. It's by design. There are ways that men and women uniquely image God or reflect God's image in different ways. You know, sometimes the Bible uses female metaphors to describe who God is and how he loves us. For example, it says uh, God compares himself to a nursing mother. Another occasion, God says, compares himself to a young wife. And another occasion, Jesus, he says, you know, Uh, Like a mother hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wings. That's what I'm like. And yet God, at the same time, consistently and exclusively refers to himself with a male pronoun, doesn't he? He. It's always he. Jesus is, he's always the father. He's always the bridegroom. Jesus is always referred to as the son. See, in the creation story, God looks at the man that he created and he says, after saying that everything is good, he looks at the man and what does he say? It is not good that he should be alone. And so God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. In other words, there's something that he cannot do and he needs someone who can do that. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, look, exactly, that's it right there. That's so patronizing, that's so demeaning to insinuate that women were created to be men's helpers. That's so demoralizing, demeaning. But here's the thing, the term helper, I want you to understand, that's not a demeaning or denigrating term at all. And let me, and maybe say, well, well, how do you know that? Well, here's how I know that. Throughout the Bible, God uses that word to describe himself. That same word that he used to describe the woman, he uses to describe himself. He calls himself the helper of his people. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. Furthermore, one of the titles that was given to the Messiah, right, the greatest person who would ever live, the most important person who has ever lived, what was that title? He was called the servant. And when Jesus came, what did he say? He said, I am the servant. I came to serve, not to be served. And he told his disciples, if you want to be truly great, then you must become a servant as well. In other words, Jesus exalted this role, this title, this word that many people thought was a demeaning word. Jesus took it and said, no, it's not demeaning. This is where the glory's at, guys. Well, why? Well, we'll think about it. I was talking to somebody today. He's an engineer. Um, this week, I was talking to him. He's an engineer. And he said this, well, when he's at work and there's something that he needs help with that he can't figure out, well, who does he go talk to? When he needs help, who does he talk to? 
He doesn't go to somebody who's less than him. He goes to somebody who has a skill or who has knowledge that he doesn't have. In other words, that's a really good thing, right? If you have kids and your kids come to you, why do they come to you? It's because you can do something or you know something that they don't know or they can't do. In other words, the idea that women are created to be a helper, this doesn't denigrate women. In fact, it just states a fact that there are things that women can do that men can't. And likewise, there are things that men can do that women can't. And that shouldn't be surprising to any of us. We're equal in value, but we're unique in many ways. And that uniqueness is by design and it is good. See, the idea that God created us in his own image has a, has a few other aspects as well. One of them is this. The Bible tells us that God is a triune God. In other words, he is one God who eternally exists in three distinct co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that by nature, God is relational according to his own nature. And so part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are relational beings. Again, this sheds light on the fact of why it was not good for the man to be alone. But here's the other thing. Throughout the Bible, we see that these different persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are all called God. They are equal in substance and value. And yet they have distinct roles and functions when it comes to God's work. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're all attributed with creating the the creation. But when it comes to the mission of God, of bringing salvation to the world, then the roles begin to change. The Father sends the Son. The Son obeys the Father. The Son glorifies the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son. And the Spirit, the Father and the Son together send the Spirit. And the Spirit reveals the Son and glorifies the Son and that glorifies the Father and this beautiful just reciprocal relationship. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says, look at Jesus Use him as an example for your life of humble, humble submission to God, right, and, and to each other. He says, look, Jesus, he's of the same substance as God, as the Father, and yet he didn't see that as something to be grasped. Rather, he let it go, and he submitted himself to the Father, and then the Father exalted him to the name above all names. And Paul says, may we have that same unselfish heart in ourselves that isn't self-seeking. See, this idea of being equal but unique is found throughout the Bible. In Galatians chapter 3, we're told that in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In other words, we get a new identity in Jesus. And yet, Paul also talks in that same letter about marriage and leadership and the distinction between men and women. He says this phrase, which I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. And again, this is where a lot of people get hung up. They say, look at that right there. Everything you've set up until now, fine. But this thing about wives submitting, doesn't it just open the door for dominance? Doesn't it just open the door and empower uh, abusive people? Now we have to admit, again, that that has happened. People have used that verse in that way. But again, to do so is to hijack the text and go against the intent and meaning of the text. How do I know that? Well, because here's why. The very next verse says this. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's interesting. Notice the primary command to the husband is not to lead his wife. It's to love his wife. That's interesting. But notice this. How is the husband to love their wife? He's to do it as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? Well, Christ served the church. 
right? He served her, put her needs above his own, suffered for her, and ultimately gave his life for her. Now imagine for a second, just bear with me, what if this was reversed? What if those two roles were reversed? What if instead of saying to husbands uh, that message, what if it said that message to wives? What if it said, wives, always put your husband's needs above your own? What if it said, wives, I want you to love your husband to the point of death and always sacrifice yourself for him. Let me ask you, if that was switched around and that was the message to wives, do you think that message could be taken and twisted and used against women by abusive men? Absolutely, it absolutely would. Perhaps even more so. Instead, though, it's the husband who is commanded to serve and to sacrifice, not the wife. That's interesting. And if you know that someone is committed to loving you and serving you and laying down their life for you and everything that they do, well, that's somebody that you would be eager to follow their lead, isn't it? See, the fact that men and women have unique roles in marriage and leadership and family is a reflection of how we're created in the image of a triune God a rela- who, who eternally exists in a relationship of three unique persons who have different roles and functions and yet are equal in glory. So along with being equal and unique, I'll finish with this. Uh, it also tells that women and minorities are what? They are loved, very much loved. Now you might ask the question, if God created men and women equal, then what led to the devaluing of women? Even we see it in the Old Testament with some of the Old Testament characters. Well, the answer is this. What led to that is very simple. It's sin. Sin is when we deviate from God's standards. It's when we miss the mark. It's when we go off, right? We do things that are wrong. It's when we miss the mark. And uh, as people began, and we see it in the Bible, as they began to rebel against God, those who had power began to use their power, not to love and to serve, but to subjugate and domineer. And rather than valuing the unique characteristics and roles of the other, they began to say that their roles were more valuable and more significant and more important. These are actions of sinful pride and arrogance. And in the time of Jesus, we know, in fact, it got so bad that there was a prayer that Jewish men would, would often pray every morning. And that prayer would go like this. God, I thank you that I was not born a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. And one of the things that Jesus did is he came and he corrected things. But again, it wasn't something new. He's bringing it back to the way it was always meant to be. It was always intended by God to be. And in Jesus' kingdom, women and minorities are loved and treasured. Their status is equal with everyone else. Their roles are valued and important. And not surprisingly, a lot of women were drawn to Christianity for this reason. In fact, there's very well-preserved writings from the Roman Empire uh, in which people criticize Christianity uh, because they say it attracts the dregs of society such as slaves and women. See, in the early church, women's status was elevated. In his letter to the Romans, Paul mentions nine specific women by name who were partners in his ministry. For women, Christian marriage was liberating. Guys, understand this, because in most of the ancient world, it was common for men to have multiple wives and always to have mistresses. But Christianity came and condemned that and told men, no, men, you love your wives, be faithful to them, sacrifice your lives for them. So for women, this was liberating. This is a breath of fresh air. When it comes to minorities, you know, one of the things about Christianity that was so radically different in the ancient world 
is that every ethnicity at that time had their own religion, every people group. But Christianity came and it was different. It came that Jesus, it claimed that Jesus was the savior of all the world, of all peoples. And Christianity, following Jesus' commands, it quickly became international, multicultural, multilingual. It went into all the world and brought the message of God's love for all people, that he created them and he wants to spend eternity with them. Because in the greatest act of love, the greatest proof of love, God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He served us, he suffered for us, he put our needs above his own, and he gave his life as a sacrifice for us in order to save us from that curse of sin and death. And the message to all people is this, God loves you, you are precious to him, he wants you, you have value in his eyes. So rather than denigrating This message of the gospel is the most uplifting message that exists in the world. It's the message that God has come to us, not to suppress anybody, but to lift us up into relationship with him so that in the end, there will be a great multitude of men and women and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of God. And the question is this for you and me. How do we become part of that multitude? Here's how. By accepting God's help by accepting his help, by embracing what Jesus did for you that you could not do for yourself, by saving you, by giving his life for you, by living the life that you should have lived, by dying the death that you should have died, and by resurrecting from the grave in order to save you. So as you go from here today, may you know this, that you are loved by God, and may his love move you and motivate you to give your life to him in every area. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has come down to us to lift us up into fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that all of us in here today would receive that grace. We'd receive that uh, which you've done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have sometimes maybe misused your word, misappropriated it. Lord, we want to hear from your word. We want to become the people you want us to be. So we ask, Lord, may we be shaped by you and may we receive your grace by faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.